Hey, it's Thomas Frank. I've just got a quick note for you before we get into the show. If you've been enjoying the Inforium or my videos over on YouTube, then you, my friend, should get Nebula. On Nebula, you get ad-free versions of both this podcast and my videos, along with exclusive stuff like extended versions of those videos. And it's not just our stuff that you're going to get. Dozens of other creators are on Nebula, including Ali Abdal, Wendover Productions, Braincraft, Tier Zoo, and lots more. Nebula gives us a chance to experiment, and since everything's ad-free, it's also the best way for you to get our content. Head over to theinforium.com slash nebula to sign up now. Hey, what is going on, everybody? And welcome to the College Info Geek Podcast. My name is Thomas Frank, and this is an episode unlike any other that we've done in a while, because I am actually interviewing somebody today. Yeah, I haven't done that in probably 25 or 26 episodes, but... Uh, this was a really cool opportunity, so I wanted to do it. So guys, today on the podcast, I am interviewing a high school student, actually, named Mayor Edelberg, and Mayor is a filmmaker. And the reason I wanted to interview him is because he reached out to me and he told me what he was doing, and he said that he put together and filmed a web series with an entire crew and entire cast of actors, and he put this entire thing together as a 17-year-old high school senior, and everyone involved in the production, at least on the crew side, is under 25 and I had a look at the trailer and um, the quality of the series that he's putting together which is called synesthesia is just really really high for his age the trailer was really well cut together and I wanted to talk to him and ask him how he got involved in everything what his path has been so far and how he was able to put together something so high quality at such a young age so if you are an aspiring filmmaker if getting into the field of film is something that you want to do or if you're just an artist and you want to get inspired by somebody who is doing something really, really cool at a pretty young age, I think you're going to enjoy this episode. And you can find the show notes over at CIGpodcast.com slash 159, where you'll actually be able to watch the first episode of his series on YouTube for free and potentially further episodes, depending on at what point in the future you are listening to this episode. So definitely check those show notes out. We will also be linking to some more technical resources on filmmaking and some cool stuff that both Mayer and I mentioned as good resources. So without any further Further ado, let's get into this episode with Mayor. Mayor, welcome to the show, dude. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, I, I started recording like five minutes ago, and we got into one of those good conversations. And this always happens to me. We get into great conversations before I do the intro, so I had to do it now. But you were telling me like you are you're a high school student. You've got. 20 days left pretty much, but you're also kind of in film, uh, film school at the same time? So last year I was. Uh, at the current time, I'm not taking any classes just because synesthesia has been overwhelming my, my time. Okay. But last year I was at uh, my local community college taking uh, a few different film courses throughout the, the, the year. Mm-hmm. And that was a great introduction to like what college courses like that would be like so that I had an idea of uh, what to expect when I did fully go to college. So were you taking those courses like at night or were they actually college credit courses that you were able to take during the day? It's called middle college. Mm -hmm. So uh, we have like a three hour block of like required high school classes taught by high school teachers on the community college campus. And then outside of that, we're able to take whatever courses we want. So um, outside of those, those like 1230 to three uh, hours we could take 
any course uh, as long as it didn't interfere. And so my film courses actually come to think of it. Both of them were like 4.15 to 9.15 once a week classes. Okay. Oh, so you're doing those like three hour, four hour long night classes. I did everything I could to avoid those in college. (laughs) (laughs) But hey, I guess when you have to, when you want to take a specific class, you just got to take it when it's offered. That's really cool though. When I was in high school, we had a, a similar kind of program where I took about three or four hours of high school class at the high school building every day. And then I would go to my community college and take college classes from the professors there. But it sounds like your middle college program is even cooler than that because you can take whatever you want. Whereas our programs were, I think we had maybe three or four we could pick from and they were set programs. So mine was like business. And then there was one that was network engineering. Um, There was one for like culinary school. But I mean, you're just kind of there and you can take whatever classes you want for free as part of high school. That's amazing. Yeah, it's really uh, fortunate that I was able to to do the whole thing for free as well. It's a very selective program. Mm-hmm. Uh, the junior class has only 30 students in it and uh, about 200 applicants. And then okay. there's a rigorous application uh, interview essay process that you go through. And okay. then senior year, they add another 30 students to that class. So you can't so, just walk in and take it. You have no. to kind of apply and compete for it. Yeah. And so you said you've, you've been doing this since your junior year? So I did it from junior year uh, till the just throughout my entire junior year. Okay. Uh, and senior year, I chose to come back to high school. I was not doing well at the end of my junior year at the school. Mm-hmm. Little did I know that I had undiagnosed ADHD for 17 years. And <laughs> I got a 1.0 my last uh, semester Okay. Uh, in junior year. But... Uh, so I, I came back to high school and over the summer I got the, the diagnosis. Okay. Um, and then once I got that under control, I was able to do so much better academically and in my personal life. Um, which is why I even had motivation to, to do a film project this big. Yeah. And this is like, it's really big. I mean, I guess like I'm sitting here from the vantage point of just like dude in his bedroom (laughs) making videos and occasionally I get my roommate to film stuff for me and I'm watching some of the behind the scenes stuff that you're putting out there and like you've got whole crews of people like holding up light screens and doing audio and this is really cool I'm guessing that your start in film didn't start out with just this class that you're taking at the community college right oh no absolutely not Uh, I've been making films since I was just about 10 or 11 Mm -hmm. I got randomly started when a friend of mine um, who is a principal at a religious school, um, asked me to make a video about the environment for her students. Okay. And I made that video. Uh, it was possibly one of the worst videos I've ever made. <laughs> um, but that really catapulted me into this whole idea of filmmaking and video. Mm-hmm. And so from there, I uh, went to summer camps that offered film courses. Okay. I took like the communication class at my middle school and tried to do whatever I could to do as much film uh, throughout the the entire 10 year old to 17 year old time. Yeah. So you weren't just you weren't just like fiddling around in your room with the camera. You actually went out and found summer camps and actual educational opportunities. That's yeah, really cool. definitely. I always uh, look at my film experience and, and it's very different from. Uh, others. I didn't, I wasn't one who 
uh, just took my camera out and just shot things mm-hmm. and then cut together. And that's usually what you're going to see from if you look farther back on YouTubers pages. Yeah. Um, filmmakers pages they have like really short films that are like them and their friends and they set up a camera and they're not high quality but they're still you know fun and they they did them and they threw them on youtube Mm -hmm. and then over time you know they progress i didn't i didn't really do that and i didn't just go out and and shoot whatever whatever i wanted to i always had a lot of forethought to to all of my projects okay Um, so depending on what i was doing um for example when I was in freshman year, I, uh, my youth group, um, we have an international convention each year and that year was in new Orleans and we went to the lower ninth ward to see and help. Was that Katrina the, at that point or? Yeah. Okay. Uh, it was, it was actually eight years after Katrina. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. But the devastation in this one location was mm-hmm. still awful. Yeah. And so I made a documentary about that, um, freshman year and, from there, that really made me want to do more of this filmmaking because I realized how impactful filmmaking be at that could be at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I always say is that you know a picture says a thousand words, yeah. And the average film is shot at twenty three point nine seven six frames per second. Each of those is a picture. So once you have ninety minutes of that, um, I used to have this number memorized, but it's <laughs> hundreds of thousands of, of pictures on a on top of the dialogue, you just so much storytelling and so much content that can really change people's lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And that's been very motivating for me. As someone who started as a writer, I have just been learning and am still learning that you have so much more to work with and do with film than you do with almost any other medium with the possible exception of game design, because then you have the interactivity part of it. Mm, that's, but that's a just good point. Like everything you can do. And I think I'm just scratching the surface. Like you're making an actual document or you're making documentaries, you're making series with multiple people and stories. And for me, it's it's been largely just talking in front of a camera and using video as a medium to show visually what I'm explaining. But I'm starting to try to to maybe tell more through context in the scene instead of just saying things over you know, like a voiceover on camera. And it's just really cool what you can do. So tell me how, how synesthesia got started because this is, it's bigger than you. It's oh, what, yeah. like yeah. 14 people on a crew and 10 actors at, at the very least. Uh, on the smallest crew. Well, the smallest crew can be, you know, four or five people for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but for most of our shoots, we have about an average of, of, 10 crew, mm-hmm. um, and working with two or three actors. Uh, and those are the smaller scenes, but when we have bigger scenes and we have more actors, we obviously need more crew. Yeah. Um, and for our largest scene so far, which was a party scene, we had, you know, professional gaffers, which were lighting technicians. Okay. Um, and we had hired professional grips who are in charge of the lighting rigging, just, okay. just rigging of, of lighting. Does that mean like that, building the scaffolding that the lights stand on pretty much? Uh, not necessarily. Uh, there are lots of different stands. There are lots of different clamps okay. and they are specifically trained in, in everything that has to do with lighting. And so they work with the camera department and the lighting department, mm-hmm. um, and the electrical department to make sure that everything is, is on the same page and that the lights are where they need to be and that the electricity is not going to short circuit the entire location. Um, yeah. but on that shoot, we had about 
30 crew members. Um, wow. And that was very insane, to mm-hmm. be honest. But it was also amazing being able to work with that much talent. Yeah, that's awesome. And you said you're, you're working entirely with people under 25? Pretty much, with the exception of people that we have to professionally hire, okay. like the one gaffer, but he was still 26, mm-hmm. uh, just out of school. And everyone else is under 25. My producer is just turned 25. Uh, my director of photography is 21. My production designer is 20. And everyone else is generally 18 or under and goes to my high school or high school nearby. That is awesome. So say that I am, I just have an idea to put together a film ser- or a web series like you're doing. How do I go about finding people that are able to work with me on it, both in terms of technical ability, but also just in terms of like knowing I'm going to be able to work with them? Because I've got my, my best friend that I can say, hey, film this thing for me and I can teach him a couple of things. But when it comes to hiring a crew of 15 people, that's a much bigger challenge. Absolutely. Um, finding the people that I wanted uh, was very difficult. And the way that I started out was uh, with my producer, who I actually met in at that community college. So that was the biggest advantage of, of that program. Um, was he the first but, person that you started to work on the series with? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So after uh, writing the first few episodes, um, I contacted him and I was like, Hey, I'm working on this. Let me know what you think. And so he wrote me back in and he said, I like this, but I don't like this. Maybe we can work on this. Mm -hmm. So he came over and we worked out the kinks. Uh, To be completely honest, I went through 24 drafts of the pilot before we settled on something. And through that time, the story changed, extremely changed to the point that most of the elements of the first draft that I had were not in the the final draft. (laughs) Um, But... He got some crew members and through our mutual friends who we met in the classes that we took, I met the director of photography through a friend and he brought on the production designer Mm -hmm. because they were working on projects together. Um, And so those were the more professional crew members. And then for people like the first assistant director and the second assistant director, those were people from my high school. And... To start out, I wanted people that had experience. So yeah. my casting director and my co-writer and my second assistant director are all the same person. Um, her okay. name is Diana, and she is an actor. And I met her through some drama classes at my school. Okay. And I knew that she would be good for casting, and I also knew that she would be good for working with actors on their lines and portraying the emotions that I wanted. Mm-hmm. And so I brought her on um, in November. And so I had to teach my second assistant director just a few things about what being a second assistant director is. Mm -hmm. And that's things like call sheets and locations. And but she she knew everything about acting and about all of the other things that I wanted from the casting director and a Mm co-writer. And so she was able to do that. And from there, I found a first assistant director who had absolutely no film experience whatsoever. And so teaching him um, the things that I wanted a first assistant director to be doing, which is things like also mainly locations um, in charge of that first, the second assistant director, shot setup and shot planning. Uh, The first assistant director is mainly in charge of time Mm -hmm. and time management. And... So I, I had to, to teach him and I sent him some links and some film riot stuff and some 
Rocket Jump Film School, and that's how I taught most of my crew uh, from videos from Rocket Jump Film School. They have such a good channel. <laughs> they have a fantastic channel. I, I love I, Rocket I Jump. Love it. So it seems like you yourself have a pretty good grasp on what all these different roles do. So how did you learn these things? Because it's not it's not like you're just going deep on one subject. You seem to have a pretty firm grasp on every single part of the production process. Right. I wouldn't say that I have a super solid grasp on every single part just because, I mean, you know, the reason that film credits are 10 minutes long are because, you know, <laughs> department after department after department. Yeah, um, of course. But I mean, but you, the, you know what a second assistant director does, you know what a grip does, you know what you, you know all about, you know, shot planning, time management, casting, like all these things are things that you would assume somebody would know about only if they had a ton of experience. And obviously you're 17 years old. So how did you learn uh -huh. all these disparate elements? So a lot of it did come from the film school courses that I took. And mm -hmm. I took two film production classes. Okay. Um, and so you learn a lot from that. Honestly, delving into Film Riot and Wikipedia also teaches you a lot. Mm -hmm. And YouTube in general, uh, excellent for learning a lot of things. Yeah. But I also read a lot. Uh, which is ironic. Anyone who knows me knows that I do not read very often. <laughs> um, but the textbook that I got while I was at school had a lot of that great information. And I have two textbooks from school. One of them is like a, a basic guide to filmmaking. And another one goes very in depth on short film making for directors and producers. Mm -hmm. And that information is extremely useful because each of those books is 500 pages long, has indexes of every position and everything that that position does. Okay. And so just reading over that, not going to get that experience in real life. Right. Yeah. I'm not going to be doing that until I set out to, to do that. Cause as a 17 year old living in the San Francisco Bay area, there's not a lot of production companies that are going to be working <laughs> and hiring teenagers. So as a guy who has spent most of his life in Iowa, I just moved to Denver, which is also not a huge film town. My perception is that there would be a lot more opportunity in San Francisco and just in anywhere like populated areas in California. Um, but it's sounding like, is, is it just really competitive to get your foot in the door as somebody who's younger? Definitely. Uh, okay. One of the biggest problems is that I live right in the smack dab of Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. Um, I live in San Jose. My high school is very STEM oriented. You know, I live in a, a very wealthy part of San Jose as well. And I mean, Apple's two less than two miles away. Oh, wow. uh, Google is six miles away. Netflix is the other direction. Mm -hmm. And this area is not a great place for creative inspiration. And that's actually the one of the first things that I say during the or the character says during the first episode. Really? Um, that's, that, and, that's surprising to me. I feel like I felt like there would be a lot more creativity going on in that area just because it's Silicon Valley. Is it really kind of divided along the lines of like tech and art and their split? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's why there's such a big movement now, especially with trained educators to go from that STEM to STEAM. So introducing art mm -hmm. into science and all of those other things, because art is such a valuable asset. Yeah. When you're doing all the other things that you do with technology. Mm -hmm. But as far as, you know, film programs around here, they're scarce. And even further up the peninsula, 
chances are you're not going to find a lot of production houses or post-production houses that are going to want to hire a 17-year-old, let alone hiring a lot of people because they're small and they don't need you know, a bunch of help. Yeah. Uh, my best opportunities now are seeing if a company in the area needs video production or corporate videos done. Um, and that, that's my best bet. So really your path to experience is just going out and getting it yourself pretty much. Absolutely. And mm -hmm. I think that that's the best way to do a lot of things that you want experience for. You're not going to do any of this stuff just sitting around. And as I, I love, you, you can't be a filmmaker unless you go out and make films. Mm -hmm. You have to go out and you have to shoot and yeah. edit and put it on. And, you know, if people hate it, okay, so you do it again until people don't hate it. Yeah, exactly. It's funny because um, I hear so much about like people who get themselves into really cool jobs like filmmaking or anything else. People say there's a lot of luck involved in it. And I do think that that's true to a degree, but like you said, you have to go out and make films or you have to go out and edit or do some sort of work that builds a base of knowledge and skills in a portfolio that puts you in the right position to take advantage of a lucky situation, whether it be Absolutely. meeting a producer or whether it be eventually for you possibly finding a production house that sees your portfolio. I mean, there, there may not be production houses out there, but... I would bet that now that you have synesthesia launching, like you have an amazing portfolio piece to use as justification for why you might be helpful to one of those production houses that maybe before would have been hesitant to hire you. Yeah, that's the best thing that young filmmakers can do is just build up their portfolio whatever way they can. Mm -hmm. From going out and filming a time lapse, you know, you may not think that it's great, but you can put it on a stock footage site and you know, have people download it and then credit you in that. You can do things as little as projects for like a class that you're taking. Make it as good as you can. And then, you know, put that online. Mm -hmm. And then you have a portfolio that will continually build and you're not going out and trying to make something huge because you really can't do something huge unless you get over that, that small hump. Yeah, absolutely. So with your friends uh, and the people on your crew, it, it seems like most of them were friends of either you or your producer. So it, is it the case that you didn't have to go do a whole lot of cold calling, essentially, like advertising that you needed crew members? Definitely not advertising. Okay. Cold calling was pretty much how I got all of my crew members. Um, so it's not all people that you know? It, it's kind of interesting. Most of them I do know and most mm -hmm. of them I, I have known. Other people are through a lot of other people that I know. Okay. Um, but one of them was, there are five high schools in my high school district, and one of those high schools has a film club, and my high school does not. Okay. And so I, I looked up the Facebook page, and I'm like, I have a mutual friend with this guy on this club council. Oh, cool. So you were able council. to get hooked in with a film club outside of your school just by finding somebody you knew who was on it, pretty much. Basically, and okay. through those mutual friends, that's the connections that I made. Mm -hmm. And his name is David, and now he's my, my sound recordist on, on set. But through all those connections, cold calling is a very effective way once you know people. And so if, if you know people that are going to be useful for you, 
the best thing to do is just to ask them because there's no harm in asking them. And yeah, there's a lot of potential benefits. And for example, my script supervisor, one of the most important jobs and coming from absolutely no knowledge with film, I sent her two rocket jump film school videos to study. And within a week she was doing her job like she'd been doing it for years. Oh, that's awesome. So what and exactly does a script supervisor do? So a script supervisor is, as I said, one of the very important positions. Uh, basically, to start out, they tag the script. And so most script writing applications have a tagger. Mm -hmm. So you tag things like crew, uh, cast members, props, set dressing, sound effects, VFX, uh, vehicles, animals, everything like that. And then you put that into a document and you send it out to the department heads. So the production designer and the director of photography okay. so that they know what they're looking for. After that, the script supervisor will be on set and watching generally a monitor and seeing what one shot has in it versus another shot and marking down things like who we saw in this shot, if there was a continuity error, and that's the most important job that a script supervisor has. Okay. Um, and so that's like if there's like a blue car in one day and then you come back to film the next day for the same scene and like there's a red car instead, like that's a continuity error kind of. Yeah. And then even simpler things like in one shot, you know, an actor has his elbow up and then the next shot, the actor doesn't have his elbow up. Mm. Of course, most editors and most directors are completely fine with continuity errors as long as the story still works. Yeah. But, you know, you don't want something big. And a lot of editors have actually messed this up mm -hmm. and script supervisors as well. You know, an actor's wearing a jacket in one scene. Yeah. Or in one shot. And then, you know, you have an hour of setup for the next shot mm -hmm. and they take off their jacket and then they don't remember to put it back on. And then you have your next shot without the jacket on. So your supervisor's job is to essentially catch these errors before they happen, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I would assume that reshoots are very frustrating to do. Oh, absolutely. Especially for something like this, because we're on a limited time mm -hmm. uh, with our release dates. Uh, we have locations and some of them, if we need to reshoot, we have to pay a lot more money. Mm. Um, most of these locations we got for free uh, and I'm using some of my friends houses and backyards. But the school that we shot at, we had to pay for facility use. Mm -hmm. And going back there would require the exact same wardrobe, all of the extras that we had, the same setup. And making sure that, you know, sound is the same as well. And so reshoots are, are a very big hassle. And so having someone on set to catch these things is extremely important. Okay. And that point of, of coverage. So making sure that you have enough to cut even if you do have a mistake as well. Kind of like uh, like room tone at the end of an audio recording. Oh, yeah. Oh. is incredibly important. Mm -hmm. It's ever silent. Even if you think it's silent, there's always the hum of something, an air conditioner, a refrigerator, nothing is, is ever silent. And so if you hear silence on a video, you're thinking the mic died pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I always get freaked out about that. Cause I shoot with a video mic pro. Um, when I'm like here, I've got a actual shotgun mic on a boom, but if we're out anywhere, it's, it's the pro and you got to remember to turn it on. And, oh, yeah. uh, I mean, if you've watched like pretty much any Casey Neistat video, there's probably just a scene where he's like, whoops, forgot to turn the mic on. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're shooting with a Rode NTG4 Plus. Oh, that's um, what I use too in my room. I love it. It's a fantastic mic. It's so um, good. It is. It's, it's amazing. Into a Zoom H4n. 
okay. um, or an H5, depending on the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then dual recording there in addition to the two little microphones on top of a, of the H4 and the H5. Yeah. Now, those two little microphones, those those aren't great. So is that just backup that's in usually, case like you have nothing else? That's usually absolute backup. And okay. I also, just in case, I put my little video mic, video micro, mm-hmm. or if I have time and I have it with me, the video mic on top of the camera and then plug that in. So yeah. the camera is also recording the audio for two reasons. One, syncing in post-production mm-hmm. is much easier. It's automatic as long as you have the audio synced, which is why you have a clapperboard. Yeah. And so that's one reason. Also, the video micro and the video mic are excellent, even if they're a little bit further away from the subject. And they often can really save you. Mm-hmm. Uh, for my Kickstarter video that we did, uh, we I put the video micro on top of the my camera, and then I was also using the H4N and the NTG4 Plus, mm-hmm. and I ended up using the video micro because the quality was just... Was it better? Better. On the micro? Interesting. Yeah, probably because of the settings that I had on the H4N. Oh, okay, yeah. And yeah. with the the NTG4 Plus, and I, I feel like I'm risking getting too technical for yeah. most <laughs> listeners here, but that uh, the H4N is not... It doesn't provide phantom power, does it? It actually does. Oh, does it? Okay. I don't own one, so I didn't. It's only useful if you have a microphone that plugs that's not XLR because the XLR won't work with the with the phantom. It's usually just an an external in just five millimeter. But we probably are getting too technical. (laughs) But basically, you got to make sure that mics charged every time. Oh, yeah. yeah. What I love. I never charge my NTG4. Because the battery life is 150 hours. Well, I don't charge it because um, my board or my mixer does provide phantom power to it. Oh, so, that makes sense. So, yeah, it's like one thing I was thinking, man, like, okay, so with a project like this, there's probably a zillion batteries that you have to charge before you oh, film. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Fortunately, as the director, I don't worry about that too much because my director of photography, he used the A7S II. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has been doing this for years and has everything like that, um, already set up. He uses the Ronin and has the batteries for that. The Ronin M mm-hmm. we've used lots of other smaller cameras to get other shots and just other general equipment that you need so much other setup for. Yeah. And so all of that is usually taken care of by another department. Okay. Um, things that I take care of are. You know, because I, I'm still in high school, I don't have a place to store all of this. I don't have a, a, a warehouse. Uh, so all of it's just in my room pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, so things like walkies, you know, I keep in my room and I like charge every day. Yeah. If we need them and, and just like those little things. But for the, the big things, I leave that up to, to the pros. Pretty so much. you've got people who basically they do their jobs and you don't have to worry about that. Which is very fortunate. Yes. So what is your exact role in the production then? Right. By like title. So I am the writer. Okay. And I've been writing the first draft was in October. Mm-hmm. And I wrote and rewrote and rewrote until the final episode was completed, which was just about three weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And I'm also the creator, so I created the storyline, the actors, uh, just the whole idea, and the director. And so organizing things like casting and crew smaller members of crew 
and just overall creative direction is what a director does. Mm -hmm. And, you know, things like blocking of actors or, you know, what color temperature do I want these lights for this scene? Things like that are how the director portrays his his message uh, to the department heads. So basically it's up to you to have the overall vision of what the show should look like. And then you make a bunch of decisions both during filming, during editing and beforehand, but you don't necessarily carry out most of them. Like it's a lot of like basically like saying, Hey, you take the lighting people, take the color temperature to this level or, yeah. you know, you have the actors block in a certain way. Right. So with, with actors, that's what, what a director mainly does mm-hmm. is really work with the actors and make sure that their, their lines are down and their portrayal is how you wanted it originally. Mm-hmm. And usually I'm just fortunate that I wrote and direct, yeah. um, which is what a lot of people do because I can take my script and know what I wanted and then really work with the actors on that because otherwise things like, for example, like Friends, you know, you have a different director and a different writer for multiple episodes and that goes for generally most big TV shows. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, things can change and how a director, one director wants someone to portray something can be different. And so for me, it's fortunate because I know what I wrote and I know what I wanted from that scene when I was writing it. Yeah. That seems to make sense to me. I remember, um, I I think maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I think like Hitchcock wrote his movies and he would, he'd spend so much time on every single little detail during the writing process that when he got to the directing process, like that's why he has this famous reputation for being like this lazy chill director. But it's because he spent so much prep time on every little detail and making sure everything was right and prepared correctly. And uh, it just like, it, it seems weird to me to not write and direct. Yeah, it, it really does. I mean, the the best people, um, for example, what I do in my free time a lot of the time mm-hmm. is print out feature scripts and read them. And so I just printed out Whiplash's script. Mm-hmm. And so Damien, Damien Chazelle, I want to say, I think. Is that the director? Yeah, Damien Chazelle, mm-hmm. writer and director of Whiplash and also La La Land. Okay. And, you know, he writes and directs and he he knows what he writes and he knows what he directs. Mm -hmm. And that's really big because the interpretation of a director of whatever writing was can dramatically change any scene. And one of the best things to watch on YouTube is how a director blocks a scene because a fantastic video, I don't remember who, uh, who it's by, but you just have a script, you have no direction, you have no tone written you just have line by line by line for about three pages Mm -hmm. it's in this police station and you can see how you know one of them is just in an office two people talking one of them is you know these the detective and the chief like walking through the the office Mm -hmm. another one is in an interrogation room and they're all the same script and the words are all the same uh but the dynamics between the actors and how it comes off is completely different so the script didn't even specify the location, is what you're saying. The script specified the location, a police station. But, it, but so it didn't say that, like in interrogation room or walking through right, exactly. the precinct or something like that. Yeah. And so, you know, when I wrote huh. interior school or 
in California, all the schools are outside. Um, oh, okay, yeah. All of our campuses are outside, mm-hmm. which is something I hate about Hollywood, but I, I understand, you know, lighting and <laughs> weather control. Yeah. Um, but uh, that's like another thing I really wanted my series to be representative of what teenage life was like in California mm-hmm. and the Bay Area especially. But yeah, I wrote interior school or sorry, exterior school mm-hmm. in my script and that could have been a hallway, that could have been a field, that could have been lockers, which it, it was, that's what it ended up being. Yeah. Um, but we didn't even know what we had necessarily coming into the location because I visited the location once prior to filming and we didn't know exactly which areas we would have. We only had one classroom available. Mm-hmm. We had a lot of other people to work with and there were other events going on at the school and we had to block much differently than how I had originally pictured it yeah. when I was writing. So You know, it's kind of funny, like you're illuminating something that I don't think about much, but you know how when a book gets made into a movie, there's always a contingent of people who are angry because the movie doesn't represent their vision of the book or even the author's vision of the book. And I think often we we like attribute like stupidity to it or malice or maybe like the there was corporate interests that changed the the script because reasons. And I'm sure that all of those happen, but it makes a lot of sense that if you have an author who doesn't have experience as a director, then that author, they are the writer of the original script, quote unquote, even if a screenwriter took their book and turned it into an actual screenplay. But because they're not the director, there's a lot of information in the book that isn't there for the director to use. And like you're making it very clear to me, there's just all these cases where if I'm sitting in the director's chair with the author's book or the screenplay adaptation, I don't know what this location actually means in terms of blocking out a scene. The reader can imagine it in their head and that's great, but when you actually have to translate it to something on film, you have to make a decision there. And it's probably gonna be different to what the author intended, but they they couldn't even anticipate the possibility of needing to communicate that to you. So either the author is like there on set at every single shot or it will be different no matter what. Basically, and an author's book is always going to be much different than a film unless Mm -hmm. it's animated because what an author writes and what they picture in their head is if it's, you know, fantasy or sci-fi, it's very hard to recreate that how they originally pictured it. Yeah. I'm sure that J.K. Rowling did not picture Hogwarts exactly how it's portrayed Mm -hmm. in the film. And when you're taking a screenplay, a lot of people get annoyed because, you know, a line wasn't said that was very important in the original book or a location isn't exactly how it was described. Mm-hmm. But with books, you have a lot more narration. The author has a lot more flexibility in what they're looking for. And in a film, you have to be able to recreate that. And yeah. recreation of an idea, even if it's down on paper, it's very difficult. And the other thing about that is that the narration that the author provides is not going to be in the film. You're not going to hear a voiceover of every single paragraph that isn't dialogue. Exactly. And there's a huge shift between written text and film in terms of how you have to tell the story. It's just, it's very, very different. This is what I'm learning with uh, the video I'm making right now. I originally intended to have a voiceover guide the, the viewer through the entire thing. 
And then once we shot a bunch of the the B-roll, well, I guess it was going to be B-roll, we were like, wait, this could be just its own thing with no voiceover. And it was really cool. But then we started to realize like, okay, this transition from this shot to this shot makes absolutely no sense if there's no voiceover telling you like this happens, then this happens. So now we yeah. have to go shoot some connective tissue essentially to make the yeah. story flow better in the viewer's eyes. Right. And voiceover is very tricky and very touchy. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to really get what you're looking for with a voiceover because, you know, what you have in your mind and then once you find an actor to to play your character, very different what the voiceover is going to sound like. That was a big thing with my actor. I have a voiceover in my series and, you know, the what I had originally even written in the script didn't work because it didn't sound good when you actually read it out loud. Mm -hmm. um, but you can show much more. Actually, no, let me rephrase that. You can show less on film than what you can describe in a book. And those little details, what you're looking for with a film adaptation of a book is the story right. and a way to bring that story visually mm -hmm. to an audience. But the way that filmmakers do that, you're going to miss a lot of the details, especially because of the time constrictions and yeah. you know, how long this scene should be and what shots do you need and are you really going to get what it said in the book about this character stares at this character intently or you know she was thinking this and you don't know that because you don't have a voiceover yeah exactly yeah i remember um uh, for a long time have you read ender's game uh i have not you haven't so it's one of my favorite books from well it's one of my favorite books in general but when i was a kid it was probably my favorite book and i remember for the longest time the author was like, you can't make a film of this book because so much of the book takes place in the character's head and voiceover of his thoughts would be really, really weird and awkward. And it would be. Um, and I saw the movie and I thought it was decent, not great. Uh, yeah, I mean, but I, I don't know if they could have made it great. I don't know. Who knows? I would say that Inside Out did oh, this amazingly. Yeah. Yeah, if but Inside Out has about, the has the the benefit of literally setting the film inside the character's head, which is brilliant. <laughs> which it's I love. Yeah, and I thought I thought it was it is not my favorite Pixar movie, but it was probably the best Pixar movie mm, in terms of I, just storytelling and filmmaking. Like I watched it and I was like, this is the highest quality work they've done. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Last Pixar movie was. Gosh, I don't know. They did a good dinosaur. I didn't even see that. I watched the first 15 minutes on a plane. Yeah. I, I just couldn't get into it. Couldn't I don't get know into why. it. Yeah. I, I feel like they might be, I don't know, slipping a little bit with with their overall consistency. Not every film, obviously, because Inside Out is a, a fantastic film. But with yeah. their consistency, uh, consistency, I think they're slipping. And conversely, I think Disney Animation Studios is getting better and better in their consistency and their overall quality. So yeah, it's an interesting shift. And I don't know if there's cool. like some internal stuff going on that's causing that. No idea. But I have perceived it as an outsider. Yeah. And I, I will say this much. Pixar is located in Emeryville, which okay. is in, right next to Oakland. And that's right next to San Francisco. Okay. Um, sorry, just a little geography for those not in California. Yeah. Emeryville is this small place and Pixar is located there. And that 
part of the Bay is much more art-oriented than the South Bay. Mm-hmm. Oakland is where I'm going to be attending college at California College of the Arts. Okay. That and their San Francisco campus. And it's buzzing, Oakland, Berkeley. You you hear in the news about how much art there is there. Yeah. Um, and then you come, you know, an hour south and half of that, most of that is, is gone, mm. which is another thing that I really wanted to explain in my series. And that's, honest to God, the first part of the first episode. That's the first narration. That's the first voiceover. So, you know what? We, we haven't talked a whole lot about the series itself. I know. I know we're running out of time and I, I do uh, intros after the fact. So I was going to kind of intro it, but I do want to hear it in your own words of like what exactly this series is about and the idea of it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so what I made synesthesia about was this high school senior, Zeke Griffiths, who is a filmmaker and musician based on me pretty much. Mm -hmm. And he is not the most popular guy in his school, but he's not, you know, universally hated either. And he has a girlfriend, Maya, and they have two friends, Kirsten and Zoe. And the four of them kind of navigate the challenges of, of high school okay. together. And that was really what I originally planned for the series. Um, over time, that changed a little bit. The characters stayed the same. But, you know, the one thing that you always needed in anything is a tangible goal. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know exactly what to make this tangible goal. So that took a lot of thought and conversations and meetings. Um, and finally, we settled on Zeke is hated by the senior class president, Rick. And Rick has decided that he's going to nominate Zeke to be the chair for the planning committee of the senior prom. But he knows that Zeke is overzealous and will, you know, put some things before others and, you know, maybe cause him some grief along the way. And that's Rick's goal. And Zeke has the goal of just making the senior prom the best it can be. But that overzealousness, his major flaw, is what keeps him from keeping his personal relationships intact at that time. And that's just on the the surface. And then underneath that, I wanted the series to be about artists. And so I wanted it to be about filmmakers in our society, especially teen filmmakers who are trying to get their work out there and the uh, repression that comes with being an artist in the Bay Area. And that's something that I really wanted to focus on. In the final drafts of each script, it was really hard to keep that content. I think I did a decently good job in maintaining that underlying part of it. But I, I, I really wanted it to be a story about the struggles of being a teenager and being an artist. Because that's what I have struggled with for years. Um, I mean, we have some of the the best mathematician and scientists that are teenagers that go to my school. Uh, we have people that have, you know, been featured at the White House and um, have created things that cure diseases that people thought that that couldn't be cured. And, you know, my school spends thousands of dollars on 3D printers or whatever, and art programs are being neglected mm-hmm. across the, the country for that matter. And I really wanted to highlight all these problems in a series that all on teenagers and I wanted it to be you know not something that starred 25 year olds that were acting as teenagers and right. I wanted it to be something that was real that was emotional and that people could really connect to especially 
the youth of Silicon Valley who were also facing these struggles. And so working with actors that are teenagers, shockingly, my lead actor is a sophomore in high school. Uh, his co-star is a senior in high school. And all of our actors, besides the ones that have to be adults, mm-hmm. are played by teenagers in school. That's really cool. And working with them was a great way to further enhance what I wanted to get out of the series as far as artists and what they went through. Because even as actors, getting gigs in the Bay Area is not the easiest. Yeah. So when you when you say like you want to highlight the struggles of being an artist, are you talking about your particular section of the Bay Area where there isn't a whole lot of artistry going on? Yeah. Because you did mention that like up in Berkeley and Oakland, and I don't really know the geography, so I kind of assume that's all a very similar area. Um, so my part of the Bay Area, there's median household household income is about $95,000. Mm-hmm. Half of the parents at my high school work at Apple or Google or whatever. And there's not a lot of art in this part. Okay. If you go up north to Oakland or to Berkeley, you know, very artistic people are from those places. Mm. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the music video Whole Foods parking lot on mm-hmm. YouTube. Really good. But that guy came out of Berkeley. Okay. Um, and Oakland is known for artist communities and I don't know if you heard about the warehouse fire in Oakland, Mm-mm. but it was a warehouse that was basically an artist convent, I guess. Okay. And uh, something electrical fire and multiple people died. But that that was just really highlighting that even though Oakland is an artistic place, artists in the area are still being oppressed and repressed. Mm. Um, and that was just a place that a bunch of people lived at. Just yeah. a, a warehouse that had been converted into this artist colony, pretty much. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there's so much motivation in that part of the Bay Area. Yeah. And so the Bay Area is pretty much, there's a bay smack in the middle. And around that, you have San Jose and the South Bay, which is San Jose, Cupertino, Saratoga, uh, I would say Mountain View. And Google is a Mountain View. Apple is in Cupertino. Uh, Los Gatos is a little bit south of me. That's where Netflix is. Gotcha. And there's not a lot of art here. Mm-hmm. Um, but then if you go up north, you get San Francisco and a lot more creativity, especially with performing arts, with theaters and shows. And this part of the Bay Area, especially for those who you know don't have a way to showcase their art, is very frustrating. Right. Um, it's frustrating to be here and not having a way to project your ideas Mm -hmm. and fortunately with youtube with vimeo there's easier to get your ideas and art out there yeah um, at least for filmmakers but otherwise you're kind of stuck here and everyone else i mean my school has 40 or 50 valedictorians a year Mm -hmm. and those people go on to yale harvard stanford so really the focus in your school is just not on the arts Absolutely not. And you know, like what you're saying right now is probably what a large percentage of anybody outside of those really creative areas probably deals with. Definitely. I come from Des Moines, Iowa. You know, if people want to do film there, they're probably going to have to do the same kind of creative stuff and scrounge together a crew from any source that they can find because we don't have, I, I don't think we have a film school in 200 miles. There's, there's just not much. 
So, yeah. and actually I remember my, my brother really wanted to get into music production. He wanted to go to music school and he's like, where can I go? Uh, oh, Chicago, pretty much <laughs> like six hours away is my closest area that I can go to. So it's, it's definitely tough, um, in, in almost every place when you contract or when you compare it to a really artistic community like that. But right. it's really cool that you've been able to find people to work with still, even when you're in an area that doesn't exactly highlight the arts. So right. before we wrap up, I know you mentioned you, you went through a couple of textbooks during a couple of your classes. And because the vast majority of the people listening to this aren't going to have access to those classes, but may have access to those books, I figured maybe you could recommend uh, what specifically you you read in terms of textbooks, but also maybe some sources that you found on the internet that have helped you in your journey as a filmmaker. All right. So the first textbook I started out with was in my basic filmmaking class. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the Digital Filmmaking Handbook, 5th edition. Okay. Um, good book. Really long and intensive, but goes through everything and has a lot of great detail on like very specific parts of editing and shows you pictures of like how to edit really, really well mm -hmm. um, from beginning to end. I, I think this book is very, very useful um, for anyone who's starting out in filmmaking. Cool. For my intermediate class, uh, we had a much more intensive book, Producing and Directing for the short film producing and, and directing the short film and video, uh, also fifth edition. Mm -hmm. And uh, this one goes much more intensely on specific things like actors and locations and more of the technical side of things and the legal side of things. Okay. Um, so for producers and directors. And, you know, most people don't really know what a producer does and they just legal stuff and funding mostly. Mm -hmm. But all of that stuff is really good for filmmakers who are starting out to know too because not every filmmaker goes in the path of creative direction and that kind of creativity a lot of filmmakers also go in the path of production management and i'm personally interested in you know sound design mm -hmm. and not so much in directing production safety management is something i'm also very interested in so there's this a bunch is, of different roles people can get into with this it's not just sitting I mean, in that cool little chair if you're interested in filmmaking and you're wondering what you can do, go sit through all 10 minutes of a film's credits and you'll see every single little role that you can have in a, in a film, mm -hmm. which is personally very interesting. Uh, for those of you who are interested in editing, In the Blink of an Eye, A Perspective on Film Editing, second edition, is my favorite book on film editing. Um, this goes not intensely into detail, which is why I think it's great for those who are starting out, but it goes more into detail on, you know, what really goes into some editing techniques and ways that you can edit, you know, with sound and with color. And again, not so much on the technical side, but just ways that you can make your cuts work better and your entire editing style. Cool. Finally, and this is a little bit ironic considering the textbook I mentioned earlier, uh, 161 strategies for making your movie no matter what, what they don't teach you at film school. Um, <laughs> and this book, honestly, is an amazing book mm -hmm. um, that goes basically into movie strategies and cheap filmmaking and what goes into crises. This book goes into practical strategies and just saves you a lot of time. And it's very well put together. 
about, you know, the first thing that you find in most film schools, and I haven't been to a big film school, but if you go to USC, from what I've heard, you know, you're sitting in your first class at USC for film and you have 400 students in your class. The professor asks who wants to be a director. Four hands go up, 400 hands go up. Mm-hmm. And then he says, all of but one, put your hand down. And then he says, and that's if you're lucky. So I think that what they don't teach you at film school is just as important as what you do get at film school. Because as for most schools, and you've covered this a lot on the podcast and in your videos as well, is that you know college is a lot about education, but a lot more about connections too. Yeah, absolutely. And film school is very important um, for connections. Mm-hmm. So um, you also mentioned some YouTube channels you watch, like Rocket Jump Film School. Are there any others you think are essential? So Rocket Jump Film School is probably the best way to get information about any sort of filmmaking technique, mm-hmm. considering they do weeklies, weekly videos, but also have extremely experienced filmmakers on staff. Uh, Film Riot is what I started out with mm-hmm. years ago. My first videos on Film Riot were the DIY ones when I was trying to build you know, a stabilizer out of PVC pipe, and it worked for the record. Cool. And so Film Riot is definitely good. Um, Indie Film Hustle is a podcast, and they talk a lot about monetary strategies, what to do to get your uh, film distributed, and a lot more the the post and when your film is completed. Casey Neistat is never a bad way to go for anything filmmaking. Mm, um, yeah, you know, he's, he's not so good for like explicit instruction, but I think watching him is just good for analyzing like what what you can do as a single person. Absolutely. His impact is is incredible, mm-hmm. truly, and very inspiring. But you're not going to learn about, a lot about editing from from Casey. Yeah. Um, and I'm trying to think of any other shows that I've watched um, on YouTube. But honestly, behind the scenes of anything, uh, from what I remember, the behind the scenes of the first Hobbit was about five hours. And that is definitely worth watching and you get to see so many other sides, you know, you get to see makeup and hair, mm-hmm. you get to see um, how they, in New Zealand, what they really did and, and how much work and how they, you know, got their crew together. And I'd say behind the scenes are also an excellent uh, way to find more information about, you know, what not to do while filmmaking and how people really interact when they are. Yeah. Um, Scrubs, which is my favorite TV show, did a, an episode in the seventh season where they, eighth season, where they, I don't even know anymore, uh, went to the Bahamas where the producer's parents were. And, you know, just like that behind the scenes, that 20 minute behind the scenes showed me so much more into what I really didn't see with the series. And, you know, that show was really important as a, a single camera sitcom. Yeah. And, just those elements of filmmaking that you you wouldn't see and you don't necessarily get from just reading a book or watching a YouTube channel that just tells you how to make films. Mm-hmm. Watching how people have made films is a fantastic way to, to learn more. Yeah, awesome. Well, if I can toss one additional recommendation into the ring, uh, the channel Every Frame a Painting is one of my favorites. I'm not sure if you've watched any of his stuff. But- I have but I'll... If you haven't watched any of his stuff, go watch his video on um, how to do action comedy, which is an analysis on Jackie Chan films. Oh, wow. So good. It might be his most popular video. 
But I'll have everything that you mentioned and then that channel linked up in the show notes so everyone can check it out. So, Mayor, dude, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, I think th- this will probably great. be out by the time that Synesthesia has launched. So I guess we we don't really need to say that it is launching. <laughs> yeah, as of uh, as we're recording this on May 5th, it comes out you know tomorrow, yep. May 6th. So we'll have two episodes launched by, you said the 15th? Uh, yeah, I think so. That's when this okay, will go out. Yeah, so we'll have about two episodes out. And I'll have everything linked up in the show notes, but uh, where should people go to check out the series and also to connect with you? Yeah, so uh, the series is at synesthesiaseries.com. I hope that you link to that in the show notes just because <laughs> no synesthesia, be one of my that. favorite words, is very tough uh, to spell. Yeah. <laughs> and as for me, uh, mayoradelberg.com, again, probably not going to get it from just hearing my name. But yeah, um, the show is on Facebook and Instagram. Um, and if you want to watch the show, YouTube, Vimeo, IMDb, um, we'll post the episodes there as well. Sweet. In addition to the website and the production website, tinywellproductions.com. As for me, you can uh, link up with me on Facebook, Instagram, and all of the other social medias, except for Twitter. I don't have a Twitter. No Twitter? I, I have a Twitter. I don't use it very often. Okay. I feel like Twitter is very ineffective for people who don't have a large following. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've I've always, I mean, I had Twitter since 2009 when I definitely didn't have a large following. I would say it's effective for making connections with people that are doing things you are interested in because it's like, at least in my opinion, one of the easiest and, how do I say this, egalitarian ways to communicate with somebody you don't already know. Because you just you're just tweeting at them. Like with Instagram, you can comment on a picture, but like there's a there's a disparity in the position of like the picture poster and the commenter, at least in terms of how the the app is set up. Whereas on Twitter, it's like it's just in your feed. So I mean, you can you can mention somebody without replying to one of their tweets, or you can reply to one of their tweets. And I think mm. it's like it's a great way to just kind of get on someone's radar as a fan, uh, maybe at first, and then eventually as a connection. I haven't experienced a lot of Twitter. I did tweet at my high school principal's account um, just because, you know, I needed something done and like the bell schedules were off. So I, oh, okay. I, I guess I, I guess Twitter is useful for those purposes. So yeah. uh, apparently you can also get me on Twitter and Snapchat <laughs> and uh, and Reddit. Don't forget the uh, College Info Geek community. Always good. That's Always true. Good. We do have a Reddit. Well, Mayor, thanks for coming on the show, man. It's been great Thank talking. Thank you so much for having me. All right, guys. Well, that about does it for this episode of the podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed that interview and got something useful out of it. Now, once again, if you want to check those show notes out and get all those links to the textbooks we mentioned, to the YouTube channels we mentioned, or to check out this series itself, you can go over to CIGpodcast.com slash 159 and you'll find all those links just waiting for you to click on them. You can also find the link to click on, which will help you rate and review the podcast on iTunes. And that is a great way to support this show. So if you want to see the show grow, if you're enjoying what you've been hearing so far and you want to see it continue into the future, that is a great way to help us out. And if you do so, we highly, highly appreciate you. Uh, and I, you know what? To be honest, I appreciate you guys anyway. So thank you so much for listening. And uh, I'm going to sign off now. So until next week, thank you.